by uh, increasing rents when leases came up and normalizing expenses. And I was able to take my investors out you know, two years early. And then also wow. that one deal funded my daughter's college education awesome. if she ever chooses to go to school. So, so that's what was like the aha movement where I was like, if I can do one deal to pay for like major life milestones that stress the hell out of a lot of people, that's kind of what I want to be focused on because, you know, buying another three family property and getting like, you know, 300 bucks a month in income is that's not life changing. Like that'll maybe pay for a car payment or something like that, but that's not truly life changing. And those larger deals are. So that was my greatest investment. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Matt Druin. And today we're talking about demystifying commercial real estate investing for residential real estate investors. Matt has a very impressive background. He achieved financial independence through real estate investing by the time he was 33. And then he set out his sights. He changed his path a bit and changed his focus in real estate. Now he invests in commercial real estate. And we're digging into some of the lessons that he's learned as a commercial real estate investor. We also talk about his start in real estate investing, his why, his background, and so much more. There are a lot of great lessons out there. If you're curious about commercial real estate investing, particularly the smaller scale, retail, mixed use, and office investing, that's really what we're focusing on today. And a lot of great lessons in this one, how he and his company create a competitive advantage in their market to create excellent returns that fit what their goals are, and so much more. Matt is a wealth of knowledge and really gives us a lot today in this interview. So I certainly appreciate him coming on the show and you are going to enjoy it as well. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment buildings and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially curious about investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com. Fill out the form, schedule a call with me, and I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcasts user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And you know what? People see your reviews. They say, hey, this person learned something. Maybe I can learn something too. And they tune in. And you know, I see your reviews as well. And that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them to the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. That's when we're escaping the Wall Street casino. Once again, our guest today is Matt Druin. Today, we're talking about demystifying commercial real estate investing, particularly for residential real estate investors. Without any further ado, here we go. Matt, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Taylor. Really excited to dig into our topic. We've had a great conversation so far, and I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of what you had to say today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you, your business, and your background, can you tell us about what you do and how you reach financial independence by 33 through real estate? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I What I do now is I own a real estate development company uh, with my partner, David, and we focus on more transformational, historic, adaptive reuse projects. So essentially vacant 
commercial buildings and uh, finding some way to reactivate them and get them and get them leased up and stabilized. But I've had like a long history and evolution up to that point. I started focusing on those projects, you know, back a few years ago because I had reached that financial independence number by the time I was 33. And I was like, damn, I'm like, I'm retired. Now what? Right. <laughs> so, and generally it takes so much like time, you know, time and energy um, to get up to that point that it's like, it's people that are not going to be hardwired to, you know, basically just like sit back on their laurels and, and, you know, do nothing and that sort of thing. So, so that's where I wanted to leverage my experience in that to focus on more projects that create positive social impact. And so that's what we've been doing the past few years uh, in the city of Rochester. But my start is I started out with a with a four family property that I owner occupied. I house I house hacked it. And the only reason I bought that property was by accident. My dad was kicking me out of the house. Um, <laughs> so it's not it's not every uh, every parent's dream to, you know, to have their adult child living with them. So yeah, so he gave me he basically gave me a timeline. He's like, you can either get an apartment with your friends or you know, you're, you know, you're a real estate agent. Like how credible are you advising somebody on the biggest purchase of their life if you've never gone through the process yourself? So I kind of liked the idea of not paying rent, you know, cause I was, you know, freeload, freeloading off of my parents. So, uh, so the idea of, you know, of, of buying a multifamily and renting out the other units was, was really appealing to me. So, so that was really when I got bit by the bug is when I bought that, I bought that four family property and I like, closed in the middle of the month and I had like $1,800 in rent checks sitting in my mailbox like magic. And the my job as a realtor to earn $1,800 in commission income on selling like thirty dollars to $40,000 homes in the inner city, it was a lot of freaking work, right? Mm-hmm. So this is like, it, it felt criminal to me like to, to actually have that. So that's when I got bit by the bug and learning like what this thing passive-ish income really, really looked like. And then from there, I mean, really was, I didn't really have a strong why behind buying that building, but I lost both my parents in my twenties. And so, yeah, so I was looking at like, you know, two of these people that I looked up to like hardworking Americans doing the right, like everything the right way, you know, saving, putting, you know, putting their money in mutual funds and all that stuff, you know, and just passing away. And I was like, I was like, I'm, I can't participate in this because my parents really weren't able to be as present in my 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 and my brother's life as much as they would want to because they were working all the time. I remember like being home alone a lot, just like basically my my friends would come over to my house because they always knew that my parents weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> so so we had a lot of we had a lot of fun back then, and we just we destroyed the house a few times. But no, I mean I I was just uh, those those types of experiences, the trauma of losing of losing my parents, and also just like knowing that they were, you know, it pained them to not be able to, you know, come to, you know, I was, I was in a music and stuff like that. I was in like, ba- I was in band and choir and that sort of thing. And whenever we had a, a concert, you know, I would look out into the, into the audience, like just, you know, my dad or mom said they wouldn't be able to make it. Right. But looking out in the audience, thinking that they might like be sitting there and they weren't. And so I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to live like that. So that's really what formed my why with like, I need to focus on achieving this financial independence goal by the time I'm 40 years old. And I made that goal for myself, made that promise to myself, and I focused on it and thought about it every single day, all day. And so 
and that's really what uh, you know sort of fueled my expansion in terms of in terms of that. And I in the in the beginning, I focused on small multifamily, two to six unit type properties, and then I got involved with uh, working for a real estate development company. I left real estate brokerage and I got exposure to the larger type stuff. And I and I worked for a guy that was like that um, you know was you know not not too smart, but <laughs> this guy was you know was like a was like a like a mega millionaire, right? Doing real estate deals. And I was just like, I was like, I gotta, I gotta study what these people are doing. And so that's where I got my, my feet wet on commercial, larger commercial real estate, everything from self-storage to student housing, to mixed use buildings, to hotels, mobile home parks, like every, everything you could possibly imagine across the entire real estate spectrum. I kind of went like a, a mile wide and an inch deep. But that's really where I went to school when I got that when I got that job exposure, exposure all those things capital raising funding sources for different types of projects and stuff like different types of uh, development projects so um, so I left there and you know basically started focusing on larger deals so awesome I love it well uh, you know really super powerful story you have a very powerful why which I appreciate you uh, sharing that with us and. You know, today, I wanted to, in our little pre-conversation, we were talking about your idea of demystifying commercial real estate for residential real estate investors, because like you said, you don't need to be a genius to do this stuff. I mean, you need to work hard and you know make it happen, be consistent and all of that, but you don't need to have a 200 IQ or anything like that. You just need to know, you know the basics. So mm-hmm. let's get let's dig into that. Where do you think is the best place to start with maybe some misconceptions about commercial real estate or maybe defining commercial real estate as you perceive it because it's kind of a broad definition really a broad mm-hmm. space. I mean, what I'm defining commercial real estate is, you know, that people ask ask me like, "Matt, like can you explain what commercial real estate to me is is anything that is a a use that is not residential." So, you know, our Banking system defines commercial as anything that's five units plus, right? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the stuff like the retail storefronts, the small shopping centers, the office build, the office buildings, even mixed use buildings. I mean, that's really where I found like my like a competitive advantage at one point in time is that you know there'd be a six family apartment building that people were just like in a bidding war over, but that same type of property that had four units and two commercial storefronts, <laughs> like. The residential people were like just scared, like scared of it, like didn't want to didn't want to touch it. And I was like, I was like, oh, these storefronts, they're like both of them are occupied. There's still a couple years left in the lease. Like, what are you so afraid? Like, what are you so afraid of? And um, so, I think that the biggest misconception is like is especially if there's vacancy is like, oh my god, how like I've everybody's seen like these stores like that are like vacant for like ten years, mm-hmm. and you know, and they think that that's going to be you know that's what what's going to happen to that. So, I mean, I think that location is incredibly important. The thing that makes, you know, residential sort of like you want to be off of the main street, right? With commercial, it's very, very important to be uh, like on main street and main street or some type of like uh, retail corridor. Um, if it's going to be retail, if it's going to be off, if it's going to be office, that's not so important. You can kind of just like take these things you sort of see as almost like just truths like, you know, and then it's like, you know, it's using a lot of like your own intuition, bad locations are going to be like, are going to be, those. they're going to lead to bad decisions on, you know, buying acquisitions, that sort of thing. So you don't want to buy a, you know, a retail shopping center that's like, you know, that's, that's like, you know, 
on a country road someplace in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> right? Like they, the business makes their money from selling things to people. So if there's nobody driving by, then that's probably not going to be a valuable location for um, for somebody who has a retail business. So in, it's a lot of intuition, but it's also a lot of like just limiting beliefs that I think get in people's way. Um, it's something they don't understand. And, you know, and I think that, you know, Warren Buffett puts it well as like, I don't invest in anything I don't understand. And, you know, if you put the, you know, if you talk to people that are involved with commercial um, real estate and educate yourself on it, I think that you'll find that it's, it's pretty easy, easy business to under, uh, understand. It just involves different, different risks and different strategies for uh, leasing space up. Okay. Okay. Great. I, so we touched on a couple of different types of commercial real estate in there. And, and two that I'm going to pull out are retail and office, which since the beginning of COVID have been a little bit of a third rail, right? People are probably more scared of it now than they were four years ago. And, you know, probably with good reason, but how do you deal with those things of say the, the perception of the quote death of retail or, Hey, everybody's going to permanently be working from home, you know, in their home office. So what do we need all this office space for anymore? How do you deal with those, uh, limiting beliefs to continue with that concept? Oh yeah, absolutely. Things have changed dramatically, you know, especially with, especially with re- retail in a conventional sense. I mean, you know, you see like, you know, Jeff Bezos as like the grim reaper of retail <laughs> and COVID in the same way as, is with office. Now with, uh, with retail, I mean, we've, we've definitely stayed away from like the regional shopping malls. Um, you know, there's also a lot of, a lot of, uh, retail has become more experiential motivated for, to cater to millennial, uh, millennial buyers and stuff like that. So, you know, there's, you know, the commodification of certain products, let's say like the big anchor stores that are in shopping malls that are like your JCPenney's and Macy's and Sears and all that stuff is like, they're just big boxes with a bunch of crap in them that, you know, that they have out there. Like, you know, it's going to, it's going to take me more time and energy to go there to buy something on Amazon that I could have at my doorstep in, in a day. So I think that, you know, where we invest in retail, for instance, is uh, in high dense city resident uh, residential corridors where we have the foot traffic we have a baseline of people that live there that will visit visit our tenants out of convenience one and also for the also the experience uh, we have a lot of like food-based businesses you know millennial you know millennials like myself you know they like to go to the place and take pictures of their food that's true you know? <laughs> yep. Yep. you know they like to go to a place and you know and uh, take a self you know take a selfie and like you know some cute little retail shop and stuff like that you know, it's definitely, it's a, there's a lot of things authentic about, you know, street level retail, like that's like, uh, that's like that, but we don't own any like shopping, like shopping centers or strip, you know, strip centers, that sort of thing. Most of our portfolio is, is all urban, uh, urban based and mixed, predominantly mixed use neighborhoods. So apart, you know, apartments and retail storefronts. Nice. Okay. So I think the next big question that I have is how do you go about adding value or otherwise achieving your target return beyond say just buying a property for uh you know existing in place cash flow coupon payment type of thing like how do you really go after uh, chasing a return these days mm-hmm. so i mean i mean in in general our i mean as a company our investor level our i mean our investor level IRRs are, are, let's say, cash on cash rate of return is 11% um, or greater. 
And then our internal rate of returns are 20 to 25% based upon the debt, you know, the uh, type of debt that we can strap on a property. So that's not just sitting on the market, right? You have to go in and, and do something to achieve uh, those things. Oh yeah, absolutely. 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 And we have, and you know, and Rochester has become like a huge place of interest for out-of-town investors because they see like, oh my gosh, you can make so much cash flow from it. I'm like, we have a we have a community that, you know, three quarters of it is, you know, either living in abject poverty or close to it. Um, so it's very, very location driven on there. And those deals, like, you know, in certain market cycles, like those deals come to you. Okay. But you know, in certain market cycles, you have to make those deals. Um, you have to make those opportunities. And so that's where we lean in really, really big with our relationship with the with the community and being the go-to people for, for people are looking to either expand a business or open a uh, new location for, uh, for, their for their existing business. And so we have those relationships that are in place that, you know, we, we go out there and look for properties that where we have these people in hand and are like basically in our, in our pocket that, that, oh, I can, I can place, I can place this gluten-free bakery in this vacant storefront in this property here. And I know what they can afford to pay rent, you know, they can afford to pay in rent. So that's how we, you know, that's how we're able to make those deals happen, you know, and achieve sustainable returns. Um, but also you asked about office as well. Yeah, offices changed big time. I mean, there's not in our assets, but you know, these 15 to 20,000 square foot um, office footprint users are, have, you know, their things have changed big time. Mm-hmm. You know, we have law firms downtown that are just basically, you know, they're, they're like reducing their footprint by two thirds. Wow. Office is not going away. It's just, it's getting, you know, it's getting, it's getting smaller for some of the, for some of the players that are in our market. And also there's, there's, there's shifts, there's shifts happening too, just in terms of appetite for location. You know, we kind of have this thing where we have people that want to be, have their office downtown and they all move from the suburbs to downtown. And then, uh, you know, and then now the cool thing is to live out in the, su- to have your office out in the suburbs. And then they, you know, they move out of, out of downtown there. And those are your big, you know, your big users. I mean, most of the stuff that we have is like at the most three to 5,000 square feet for office floor plates. So where that's very, very manageable from a risk standpoint, like a lease up risk is, you know, three to 5,000 square foot office. Like if we can't get any bites on it, we can cut it and cut it in half and lease up both of those to two different users, like almost instantaneously, because it's a very, very strong demand in that smaller market there. So we want to make sure that we have those types of contingency plans in place. Now, mind you, it's we'd much rather rent to a larger office user for actually less, like for less price per square foot than two different tenants, because dealing with one tenant is easier to do with two tenants. <laughs> sure. So, but we have, you know, we we have a really, really deep understanding of our market. And I think that's really what gives investors and developers a leg up in their market is just really, really no, like just knowing like every square inch, like, you know, I know every nook and cranny of the city, like the back of my hand. And that gives me competitive advantage. Okay. Okay. Great. So a couple of things in there is, um, 
for like retail businesses, you mentioned that just being really plugged into the market and knowing that, hey, here's here, we have a set of people or businesses that are either looking to get started or to expand their operations. So we already know that we should be able to fill this retail space that we're buying. And then on the office side, again, just still being really knowing your market and being plugged in and also having options to make alterations to the space if you need to, to change the demand a little bit in case you can't fill it in the configuration that you initially marketed in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's like, uh, for one of our buildings downtown, I mean, we have, it's made up of a lot of small offices and a trend that we're seeing is we have people that live in the area that are, basically their companies have gone full remote and they just can't work out of their house anymore. They're renting office spaces for us, like singular office spaces for like 350 to 400 bucks a month. Um, and so place to do their Zoom calls, be able to like not, you know, not have to deal with like the kit, like the kids and the pets and all that stuff. So, you know, so that's where we see like when you go smaller on the office side of things, it's usually less, it's usually less risky. But on the back end, you have, you know, a tenant mix that's just more management intensive. There's more lease, there's more leasing, typically those smaller spaces. Now a you know a single a single office user is is not going to sign a ten year lease with you, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. They're going to sign maybe a one to two year lease. Uh, so there's dis- definitely disadvantages of it, but in terms of risks that will place you or your investors in harm's way, um, is very very manageable. Okay, interesting. So you mentioned a little bit earlier about the when you first got started in this mixed use space. It sounded like the implication was there was actually less competition at the time because people were a little more afraid of it. I, am I interpreting that correctly? And and if so, you know, how has that changed the business over the years? So, I mean, I think that there's there's still some hesitation on the part on the part of investors. Um, once you get into sort of like bigger investment companies that are in your local market, you know, they sort of start you know car- start carving niches for themselves. And uh, you know, for instance. I know that a company that is is local to me actually do like a lot of lease deals with them as a broker would never buy anything that has residential ever. Hmm. I'm not competing with those guys on those deals. And then we have people that just do 100% residential that don't touch the things and then we have the smaller, you know, the smaller guys and girls that you know that have the capability of bu- of buying a property like that but they're just still too like too scared to do it um just because of that, you know, that sort of perceived risk with it. I don't know if that answers your question, but it still it still rings true, uh, rings true today, and that's why we own a lot of mixed uh, a lot of mixed use uh, properties. So. so it sounds like there still is a, a bit of a competitive barrier, maybe in the perception of your <laughs> potential competitors. They're still kind of scared by the the asset class of mixed use in particular. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely not buying them for at you know what we were buying them for back like. Sure. 10 years 10 years ago yeah um, but that's everything yeah yeah no absolutely so so no but we're still able we're still able to uh to have a competitive advantage but yeah we're still paying more for those assets now than than they were back then so i wish i i wish i bought more of them <laughs> fair, <laughs> enough. fair enough uh are there any other major especially when you're talking to passive investors any other maybe major misconceptions or concerns that come to mind that you off that you find yourself often Kind of helping them understand. Um, yeah, I mean, I I have to educate them on you know on com- like on actual commercial. Everybody understands apartments. Everybody's had an apartment or lived in a house and that sort of thing. And so 
Um, so commercial definitely seen by people as like, it's very, it's very like a lot, it's very elective, you know, it's like, yeah, well, you know, it's nice to have an office, but you know, do you really need an office uh, for your, uh, for your business? So that's like the biggest thing to get over just in terms of um, educating them. If they do have concerns, you know, most of, you know, most of my investment partners have been partnering with me on deals for um, the greater part of almost 15 years. So I'm like, there's almost, it's almost like I, I describe the business. I, you know, have a business plan that I, um, that I present to them with how they're getting paid back and what, you know, type of distributions are going to be in the, in it. But there's a trust factor there that, you know, Matt's very experienced. He knows what he's doing. Um, and I don't really get a lot of that, a lot of that thing, but there's also investors that I have that will never touch anything that's not residential either. I have one invest, one investor that if there's even just a, in a if it's a, a hundred unit apartment community and there's one office in there, like he's not touching it. So, <laughs> um, so I definitely understand that what dr- what drives our different investment partners and what what they like and what they don't like either. So, because we don't do yeah, you know, we don't do syndications. We do more joint joint ventures and uh, special purpose uh, special purpose LLCs to do these. You know, we're not doing SEC type of stuff. It's like you know, this is like very very one like one on one our one on two when we bring in two of our investment partners to do a deal with us. So, so we, we know who to take, which types of deals to, and which, which ones don't have an appetite for those. Nice. I love it. Sounds like there is definitely a lot of opportunities still in this space. If you know what you're doing right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and Get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Matt, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I was going to tell you my education that had the highest return, you know? <laughs> That's why we take that off the table. <laughs> no, no, I, I know. I'm just joshing with you. So my best investment was probably the first uh, 100% office building that I did. It was a uh, office building with about 16 different office suites in it. It was brought to me off market by a real estate broker and uh, that knew I owned properties in the area that I had a relationship with. And so that one was where I, you know, I had to raise 300,000 bucks to take it down, $200,000 for a down payment, $100,000 for, you know, some smart capital improvements. And over the course of three years, I was able to execute the business plan by, by, uh, increasing rents when leases came up and normalizing expenses, and I was able to take my investors out, you know, two years early, and then also wow. that one deal funded my daughter's college education awesome. if she ever chooses to go to school. So, so that's what was like the aha moment where I was like, if I can do one deal to pay for like major life milestones that stress the hell out of a lot of people, that's kind of what I want to be focused on because you know buying another three family property and getting like, you know, 300 bucks a month in income is that's not life changing. Like that'll make, maybe pay for a car payment or something like that, but that's not truly life changing. And those larger deals are. So that was my greatest investment. 
Nice. I like that, especially when you can tie it to a particular, like you said, life event that is very stressful for most people that really helps drive home the importance of those types of deals. But we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Jeez. I'm still thinking about this one because there, there's been a, there's been a few doozies. I probably say, I would probably say this one paid for this. None of, not, nothing's ever been fatal. Things have just been, had a lot more, a lot more heartache and stress involved, but it was a 22 unit mixed use building and had two commercial storefronts. They need to be completely rehabbed. Um, that probably was my worst, my worst investment. It didn't have parking, which, was like my like number one like cardinal rule right and but it was two blocks away from my house so <laughs> so I was just like I was like yeah my tenants you can park in my driveway so no but it was uh, uh, I still own that property but the rehab process was very 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 stressful you know I brought out a, out a partner that out of a moment of weakness that had a construction company. And we just weren't really, weren't really a good fit with each other. So there was that friction of a of a of a not so great partnership. There was the friction of you know construction pro- construction project that had like you know we blew through contingencies after contingencies, and and the project got very expensive. And then to this day, that property has definitely higher turnover because of the no parking situation. Yeah, we have a re- you know resident profile that's like you know every one of our other apartments like. We, you know, we have like one one group showing three applications for people to make like eight and eight nine times monthly rent, and uh, you know, showing done lease department. This one we have apartments that you know we have to show it like ten times. We get like five at like five rental applications that are absolute, you know, absolute just disasters. So the pro- the project still fun- financially performs just fine. It's just like from a management standpoint, it's just not so great. So that was my worst investment. More of a headache than your other properties, and those headaches really tend to stand out, even if they make money. My, <laughs> my it's favorite eighty twenty rule, man. So it's like eighty percent right. of everybody's resources is like used to like you know doing that one property. So absolutely, absolutely. My favorite question here at the end of the show is: What is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The most important lesson that I've learned is kind of related to that the bad investment right is to not be don't let your emotions get involved with it because that was purely an ego emotional type of uh move um so to be able to look at things object uh objectively you know i think is is uh is very and also it's it's definitely you know not letting your ego get in the way too because you're you're everybody's ego just they just just it just destroys you you know it destroys you know it destroys teams from operating effectively and it destroys people from making like good investment decisions for themselves too. So absolutely. Well, I love that lesson, Matt. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for all these lessons and sharing your story. If folks, folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more, if they want to get on your list for your monthly newsletter or anything like that, any other, other content that you're putting out there, where can they track you down? Yeah. Best way to track us down is uh, on our website. It's oakgrovecompanies.com. So that's O-A-K-G-R-O-V-E companies.com. Um, we have a link to sign up for a monthly newsletter right on the site there. I put out a lot of content that just is, you know, its aim is to demystify commercial real estate. I think it's, you know, it's the only thing I do now. I still have residential, but you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. I love commercial real estate just because like it just feels like a partnership with our tenants and um to be able to 
be involved with you know helping somebody grow their business through their space or you know being able to you know reactivate a retail storefront that adds value to a community is just like i mean there's just no better feeling in the world so definitely uh, we have a uh, resources there and also a e- uh, a, a mini ebook that demystifies commercial real estate for residential investors. Awesome. I love that. I'm sure you go even deeper than we went in this conversation today. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.